Hi, this is Malcolm Guy, the author of David's Crown, and you're listening to Pints with Jack. We think that Maleldil would not give up utterly your world to the bent one, and there are stories among us that he has taken strange counsel and dared terrible things, wrestling with the bent one in Thalcandra. But of this, we know less than you. It is the thing we desire to look into. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 20, The Martian, Out of the Silent Planet, Chapter 18. Welcome everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we are reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. I'm David, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Father Andrew and Matt. This season, we find ourselves among the stars, reading through the first of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy, out of the Silent Planet. And since this is the first episode we've recorded since Easter, uh, with the traditional Easter greeting, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Christos anesti, alithos anesti. And I have yet to discover how to say this in the language of Malacandra. <laughs> I actually first wanted to announce that because there is so much to say, we're going to continue doing a single chapter per episode pretty much until the end of the book. And today, we truly begin the final section of this book. Everything has been moving towards this meeting between Ransom and Oyasa, who is the tutelary spirit or guardian angel of Malacandra. And we've mentioned a few times that thus far, we've exclusively heard things and seen things from Ransom's point of view. And in today's chapter, the narrative is filled in with Oyasa's perspective. Mm. And since in today's chapter, we finally meet Oyasa, the most important person on Malacandra, I named the episode after my favorite movie of 2015, The Martian, in which Matt Damon plays an astronaut stranded on Mars. And incidentally, there are many Matt Damon movies where he plays a character who is in need of rescue, Saving Private Ryan, Elysium, Interstellar, and so on. And various cinema nerds have calculated the total cost of all of these rescues and concluded that it amounts to about $900 billion. <laughs> but this is Matt Damon, so he's definitely worth it. Boy, how do you like them apples? <laughs> I just watched uh, Interstellar. I had always seen the the commercials for it, and someone, multiple people kept saying, oh, it's their favorite movie of all time. I'm like, this doesn't look like a favorite movie of all time kind of thing. And I probably still stand behind that statement, but it was a really good movie. And I will say... For those who have seen it, that scene when he's seeing his children video message him, I'll leave it at that to not give spoiler alerts. Tearjerker. Holy cow, waterworks. Very beautiful scene. Matthew McConaughey absolutely crushes it. I'll have to watch The Martian though. Well, I was going to introduce you two, but since you've just barged into my introduction, um, <laughs> Matt, at the end of last episode, you were racking your brain trying to work out which movie you had seen, which contained a character that looked like a fiffle trig. What was the answer in the end? Well, first, I wasted an hour of my life finding this. This is not a very Googleable thing from mole <laughs> caveman cartoon to armadillo cartoon i was googling everything just looking at the images trying to find one image finally found it disney atlantis if you remember that old classic atlantis i remember loving that as a kid I watched it actually a couple a year ago with my nieces too and they loved it 
but it's the mole character that just loves to dig and be in the dirt. And doesn't it kind of look like it when I sent it to you, David? Especially the picture that you had in the Google Doc. Mm-hmm. No, I would, I would say that's pretty good. I do love the fact that uh, I think that was what, 2001? Is that what counts as an old movie? Okay, that is now 20 <laughs> plus years old, David. I would argue yeah. that is an old movie. Yes, you're starting to say geezer type things. David, welcome to the club. I'm 32 <laughs> now. I'm officially starting to get older. <laughs> we have jackets for the club, but we can't remember where we put them. <laughs> <laughs> and we really need them because everything is always so cold. People need to close doors. Hey, we need to finish up this episode by 4.30 or 5 so that we can go to the dinner buffet. <laughs> exactly. And then get an early night. I usually go to dinner at 5.15. This is a real thing. I remember I took this girl <laughs> on a date and she made a comment. She goes, I think this is the earliest I've ever gone on a date. And I'm, I was thinking to myself, huh, this is normal time for me. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, I actually pushed it 30 minutes from my normal like dinner time. I was like, all right, I can't look that weird. <laughs> That was Matt being accommodating. I love it. (laughs) 30 minutes is all they get, particularly on a first date. Well, let's get to the toast. What's everyone drinking today? Ooh, I had my birthday. Now this will come out pretty decently after it, but I had my birthday last week. And for my birthday, someone came across the Kirkland 18 single malt scotch, which... Uh, historically, famously, was a, a spot for McAllen to unload some extra batch. I do not believe that is true anymore from my research, and I think it's called Alexander Murray. But it is a delicious, very high bang for your buck 18. It's 18 at the cost of a 12, probably. Yeah, it's an unknown distillery that, that pumps theirs through Kirkland, I've been told. And a lot of people speculate online. I don't see an Alexander Murray. That's what I'm telling you. I think that's uh, just the name that sometimes gets thrown around to throw people off. This is this is a very it's mm. it's a phenomenon that's developed a bit of a cult following that no one knows anymore. And I do have still a little left of my 18 and 12. I can confirm it's it's not either of those, but in terms of quality, it is close to the 18. Although I would say it's slightly inferior to the McAllen 18, mm. but it's also one fourth the cost. So you know, it's there pretty good. Go. I don't know. I think if a cult following gave me something to drink, I probably wouldn't want to drink it. (laughs) I know. I am drinking a little fast for an 18. I've already had like three from it in a week. (laughs) I got to be a little careful. (laughs) What are you drinking, Andrew? I was sorely tempted, but bowed to David's uh, wise advice. Uh, One of our listeners sent us a home-brewed bitter, and bitter is my favorite ale. And so I almost popped that open this morning and drank it on the way to work. But um, (laughs) that would have been a great homily. Just love, love a bitter. Uh, So I've got the, I've got the decanter out and I am making my way through my standard McAllen 12. I'm going to go ahead and preemptively put two drops of water in it. You're doing McAllen 12? I love it. I'm sorry, not McAllen 12. Call Ela 12. Oh, Andrew, don't tease me. Need some Need some smoke. So, and I'll go back and work at the church after a, a, a dram of scotch. I'll feel like a proper Britishman. <laughs> well, speaking of which, I am a sympathetic drinker. And so, since Ransom can't have one in this chapter, I'm enjoying a good cup of tea. Aha. Uh-huh. What kind of tea? Uh, I'm pretty sure this is Yorkshire Gold. I just grabbed something from, from my little tea caddy. Yeah. 
And as always, since Ransom learns a new language in After Silent Planet, this season we're saying cheers in a different language each episode. And today's toast is Skål, which is cheers in Swedish, Danish, and Norwegian. Skål. I'm actually going to take the toast this week. Uh, since this is our first recording after celebrating the resurrection, I thought I'd quote Pope Benedict XVI from a luncheon that he had in 2012 with the Cardinals. And I'd like to offer this in thanks to all of our listeners, um, because I heard from many of you, you sent me messages after you discovered that I had lost my job. And I am very pleased to say that actually I now have a new one. It was a very intensive four-week process, but I'm going to be starting at Party Slate. And uh, one of the little perks of the job is they'll be sending me to Chicago. And so I'll have an excuse to visit the Wade Center four times a year. Lovely. Okay, here's the toast from Pope Benedict XVI. Thank you for this friendship. Thank you for the communion in joys and in troubles. Let us move ahead. The Lord said, courage, I have conquered the world. We're on the Lord's team, hence on the winning team. And let us raise our glasses. Skull. 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 Oh, that's good. So Matt, you've told us a little bit about this scotch. How would you characterize it? It's honestly, the short answer is it's it's very similar to a Macallan on that spectrum into an 18, but I would say it has a little bit more where Macallan 18 is incredibly smooth, very minimal burn and kind of a warm honey type sweetness to it. This has that, but I would say, unfortunately, a little more of a burn. <laughs> like if I had to rank it on a scale, more like a 15 year, not an 18 or a 14 year, but still definitely up there, beautiful. Uh, not too much smokiness, uh, definitely a warmth, but a slight burn. <laughs> You've become quite the snob. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I wear that badge with pride. Well, with that, here's my 100-word summary of the story so far. Philologist Elwyn Ransom is abducted by two men in order to be handed over to someone on Mars. When they arrive, the philologist escapes and finds refuge among the race known as Hrosa. They encourage him to seek help from someone on the planet named Oyasa, but Ransom is too scared. While hunting a great water creature, Ransom is again told to go to Oyasa, but this time by an angel. Unfortunately, they delay, and one of their number is shot by Ransom's abductors. This killing finally prompts Ransom to travel to the island of Meldalorn, and speak to Oyasa. So, in our last episode, Ransom had made it to Meldalon, and he'd wandered about the island a little bit, and he'd met his first Fiffletrig, and stood for his portrait. In the opening of chapter 18, we learn that Ransom spends the night at the guesthouse by the harbour. How does he find this experience? He reacts like an introvert, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like to me. <laughs> or Matt on a date. He, just, he, he leaves and goes to bed early. <laughs> <laughs> when he understood, yeah, there were, uh, and I loved this. I love this account. I spent six months in Spain with my father in the Canary Islands when I was 19. And one of the hardest things to really understand is humor. Ironically, the one of the easiest things to understand in any language are the cues for humor. So I spent six months in Spain laughing at a whole lot of jokes that I didn't understand, <laughs> right? Because you could tell when people expect you to laugh. Um, and so 
he uh, he breaks down the kinds of humor like like Screwtape does, and um and is exhausted by it. And even when he understood all the words, he could not see the points. He went early to bed. <laughs> yeah, sounds like somebody in in need of his own counsel. Hmm. But what's interesting is that in this guest house, you have all of the races of Malacandra. You have Cerrone, Fiffeltriggy, Rosa. And Ransom notes that all of his conversations thus far have generally been pretty grave. It's only when all of these races come together that humor really seems to come out. And each of them has their own different kind of humor. So the Sorns is about irony. The Throssa are hyperbolic and extravagant. And the Fiffeltriggy, uh, they're, they're <laughs> it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the kind of humor that guys really go for. There's lots of abuse of each other. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, it's rather delightful because... These races live in harmony with each other. They love each other. And I think that's what makes this humor possible. And it put me in mind of the line in The Great Divorce, where Lewis says, no people find each other more absurd than lovers. Mm-hmm. And he has similar sentiments in The Four Loves. And it's because of the differences between each other that we find the humor. I think it shocked me, Andrew, when you had told me this was earlier in Lewis's life and career works. And Yet you see so much already in here. You see his, I mean, he mentions in other works or letters or this concept that friends bring out different parts of each other. So when you lose one of your friends, you lose a piece of someone else because it's like that other, Mm -hmm. that friend that you lost brought out another part of one of your other friends. And so when multiple come together, it just, it's like two plus two equals five seems to happen. Uh, and so when you bring these people together, one plus one plus one equals four is probably a better way to put that. And so I guess I, I see that here a little bit. And then I also already have senses of the four loves and the role of friendship, affection, and some of the lessons that we see in there. So I just love that Lewis just continued to develop these themes in all of his works. It's just classic systematic, systematic theology and thinking of Lewis coming through here very early on. Mm. Well, and you can clearly see Till We Have Faces there because <laughs> Till We Have Faces is utterly devoid of humor. Okay. That, that was a 15-minute mark. <laughs> <laughs> it was the way you did it too, Andrew. Just, I don't know. It was, it's like, of course, I was expecting this to come at some point, but it was just after naming everything else. And of course, you can see Till We Have Faces. <laughs> but actually, you can't because there, you can't because there's a, a, a profound lack of humor in <laughs> we have faces and so it's nice to see him rubbing up against others in an inn it, it feels a little bit more like chaucer um than uh than anything else in some ways so you don't have to drink if you don't want to there's plenty of till we have faces in this chapter as you will <laughs> undoubtedly concur i've got the whole bottle of 18 right next to me so you know keep it coming get Andrew. a straw buddy get a straw <laughs> <laughs> I was originally going to try and get ahead of you in the introduction and try and point them all out so we could just be done in the first couple of minutes. But that this is would more have fun. been hilarious, David. Yeah, but it's kind of like a it, it's it's kind of like an atheist um, reading the Bible to disprove it. The more deeper you go, in, more deeply you go into till we have faces, the more you'll understand uh, that I am in fact right. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe that more and more, Andrew. I don't. Moving on. Okay, so Ransom goes to bed early and he's woken early the next morning, not by an alarm clock, but by an Eldil. Mm. And Ransom starts to feel afraid as he's getting getting changed, not of the Eldil, but of something else. What is it that's causing his heart rate to increase? Well, he's been summoned to finally see Oyarsa. 
And I thought this was interesting, so I'm curious your guys' thoughts on this. He mentions that it wasn't the fear of this unknown monster. So it's as if he's learning that this bias that he had from the beginning of the time is sort of overcome. Like, get rid of this monster fear that's been disproven like 10 out of 10 times throughout this entire journey. So why have it go 11? Mm -hmm. But he, he describes it as like this fear that you have nervousness. He actually uses the word nervousness. Let's use the proper word of like a, a more uh, the morning of an examination. And so I was curious, what do you think is the difference between fear of a, a, a monster and nervousness of an examination? Is it just, is he just trying to say it's a lesser kind of nervousness or he feels like he needs to perform? What's he trying to say? So even as Lewis describes three or four different kinds of jokes in the screw tape letters, he also distinguishes in mere Christianity between two different kinds of fear. So there's a, if, if I told you that there was a tiger in the next room, you would probably feel terrified. But if I told you there was a ghost in the next room, you would also feel terrified, but it would be a different sort of terror altogether. I think that it's even true in modern day Ireland that um, people are more afraid of elves than ghosts, right? And so here he's distinguishing a kind of fear and it's not, it's not the fear of the unknown, it's the fear of uh, insufficiency. Mm, right? It's a good word for um, it. Has, have, I have I been prepared? Will I be tried and found wanting, as Chesterton said? And so this kind of exam, and of course, Lewis did smashingly well on his exams, but that's not to say that he wasn't terribly frightened of them. And you can find this in All My Road Before Me, um, which is Lewis's diaries. And so while Matt's answering, I will go grab a couple of uh, a first edition of that so you can, you can hear it on, on the microphone. I love that you you <laughs> phrased it that way, the fear of sufficiency or insufficiency, sorry, because it fits with my constant desire to overconnect this to the spiritual journey. And I feel like this means he's sort of coming close to the destination, because if you think about it in our own spiritual journey, eventually we should somewhat come to the fear of insufficiency. I know that sounds, I mean, we need to trust in grace and God's love for us, but like the fear of going before God and wondering, were, were we enough? I think is probably a slightly a proper fear to some degree, um, a healthy amount of it. Of course, you don't want like some arrogance or something versus like a fear of dying or something. Like think of that fear of the unknown in the beginning of a spiritual journey. That should eventually go away in this trusting the Lord. But like, I feel like I do want to fall on my knees in front of the Lord and, and say, I don't know. I'm sorry if I, I failed. I failed. And then, of course, hopefully his grace is sufficient, which I would hope it to be. But I don't know. Does that kind of make sense? What I'm trying to say like this seems like a more proper fear that he it's like trying to signal that he has had a transformation on his journey. Sure. Mm. Sure. Well, and there's also the fear. The examiner knows all the right answers. Right. And it's the fear, of, I think that there's an element of the numinous in it, right? Be the, there's the fear of the Lord. His, and, and properly, Oyarsa should, should strike that kind of fear in him because Oyarsa is, you know, a, a representative of the Lord. But in an exam, it's, did I properly prepare the answers and I'm going to be examined by somebody who knows the answers cold? And that everybody, you know, will soon find how little, uh, how how poorly I've done, and so I think that there's a little of that nervousness, and I love the 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 reference to a good cup of tea, you know, which mm -hmm. would have soothed and steadied him. So it's not this overwhelming fear, but it is a, a nervousness 
And some of the nervousness that comes in front of an exam is a nervousness that the exam or the examiner may not be fair. Mm-hmm. But I think the greater nervousness is that they, they are going to be entirely fair and I will be, you know, caught short. So I think that's some of what he's, he's dealing with. Just like until we have faces where there are pleas for justice and we're told it's much better than that. <laughs> yes, you will not receive justice. You know, it's not so bad off as that. Yes, absolutely. Well, and that, that the whole of book two, you know, the trial scene, which I'm sure that David will touch on to keep me from doing so. Um, <laughs> you can really hear Lewis writing almost a first draft of that judgment scene here in this book. W- wouldn't you agree, David? Very much, Andrew. And I'd also connect it to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or earlier in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is actually, mm-hmm. I would say, a good thing that he's feeling a little bit nervous because he, he, he's starting to get wise and he's, being, he's concerned about the right things, not a monster, but the examination that he is about to, about to undergo. Absolutely. So it's a few minutes before sunrise and no Eldila seem to be around. And strangely, without even being told, Ransom begins to journey up the island's hill, up the monolithic avenue to the grove at the top. What does he see? Hmm. Well, I will say I did like in this section here as he's going out and he's about to, to start on this journey up. And at first going, I, I always think of Diana and her comment of the poetry, but it talks about the blue, the bluish smoke was rising from the lake and the sky was bright behind the jagged eastern wall of the canyon. It was a few minutes before sunrise. The air was still very cold. The ground weed drenched with dew. I don't know. There's just, there's, first of all, I was just presented with a very beautiful, I'm just picturing waking up in the mountains with no cell service and the sun rising and just a brisk morning and just very beautiful. And you just know a lot of beauty. So I'll start with that. There was just beauty I felt in the imagery setting it. Mm. I think this is a scene that Lewis really loves because you see it pop up all across his books and in his letters. He does seem to like first thing in the morning when it's still a bit of a chill in the air. The sun is just starting to rise and everything is quiet. The small, dewy, cobwebby hours of the morning, Lewis says. There you go. Yeah, and I feel like there's a hope in the morning. And that's why you put the sun rising. It's like the light's coming up. You don't know what's going to happen in your day. There's just an excitement, anticipation. There's a rawness. There's a reset. I don't know. I, I think if you think of the Lewis like the seasons of life from a change perspective, as we've read in different books, and there's, yes, there's seasons of a year, but there's seasons daily. I mean, every day seems like a bit of a reset. Mm-hmm. And Ransom sees all of the Malacandrian creatures mm-hmm. silently gathering on each side of the avenue that he's moving towards. Um, and he starts walking up the avenue and trying not to look at them as he, as he passes. It's going to be kind of intimidating. It puts <laughs> me in mind of mm-hmm. when you had to get up in front of the school uh, by yourself. You had to walk down to, I don't know, receive an award or a piece of paper. And you see everybody looking at you. It's it's really quite intimidating. Mm. He then stops when he arrives at the bigger stones in the middle of the avenue at the top of the hill. And we're told that he stood there motionless like a man on parade, which I think is a really great simile to use because like soldiers on parade, he's about to be inspected. Mm-hmm. And it's at this point, just as the sun starts to come up, that he realizes that the place is full of Eldila, even in the sky above him. Mm-hmm. 
It says he might, when the time came, be pleading his cause before thousands or before millions, rank behind rank about him, and rank above rank over his head. The creatures that had never yet seen man, and whom man could not see, were waiting for the trial to begin. Insert till we have faces reference. <laughs> I was literally going to say this sounds massively like till we have faces. <laughs> that section mm -hmm. right there. Yeah, I had to go into the other room because I did not have a copy, a single copy of till we have faces in my study. So I had to go <laughs> get it from, from spare oom. Then from every crack and hole in the mountains, there came out dark things like men, so that there was a crowd of them all around me before I could fly. They seized on me and hustled me and passed me on from one to another, each shouting towards the mountain face, Here she comes! Here is the woman! Bring her in! Bring her in! She's come at last! To the judge! To the judge! Yeah. What's that two in this section? Taylor, please cut all of that. We don't need to have till we have faces <laughs> read on this podcast. <laughs> oh, we got to rename it until we have faces name. Uh, but actually, speaking of uh, correcting things, I meant to say earlier, the I think the example of ghosts and tigers, I actually think that's from the problem of pain, not mere Christianity. Okay. Mm. Yeah. I'm sure you're right. Until we have faces sucks. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> well, and David, and, and one final thing I'll say here too, just going back to that theme that we're... <laughs> Sorry, we're getting some static on the line. Oh, I think I pinged my uh, I pinged my, my waveform. <laughs> now to my brilliant comment. The final thing I wanted to say in this section was, it did stick out to me, again, this kind of goes to his transformation. And I think we've met people and Christians in our life that, that operate this way. Without being told, he knew that it was his business to go up to the crown of the island in the grove. And I thought there was something that just stuck out to me there. He mentions later, he wasn't sure if it was Ayarsa, his intuition. But I think there's just, we're on our spiritual journey. And the more we transform ourselves, we die to the false self, become more the true self, enter into communion with God. Our intuition, I've always said this before, when people talk about how do you make big life decisions and where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to do, I'm like, you can trust your desires and your intuitions when you're more in communion with God. <laughs> I don't mean that in a negative, but like, if you're very much living a sinful heathen lifestyle, it might be, I might not quite trust all of my desires. Um, mm -hmm. But when I've lived my life attempting to discipline myself and come and live a virtuous life, and I feel more in communion with God and with those rhythms in place, I do feel like I can trust the desires and the callings and the stirrings of the heart. And so I felt that a little bit here that it was just a subtle comment, but he just knew I have to go up here. Mm-hmm. Well, and what we see is a growth in marked obedience, right? And I love the kind of calm resoluteness of Ransom's responses, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a few moments. And not only that, there's a facility with the language because, of course, Lewis, the narrator, is writing in translation, right? And Ransom has, as we'll see rather soon, uh, Weston and Divine don't speak Old Solar very well, but Ransom is balanced and informed and educated and kind of knows who he is and part of what he is is you know is a willingness to to obey and to be judged and to do whatever uh Oyarsa would tell him to do so i think spiritually he's in a really kind of good place right now <laughs> well after quite some time all the creatures rise to their feet and bow their heads ransom catches an almost imperceptible glimpse of Oyarsa. It says, the merest whisper of light, no, less than that, the smallest diminution of shadow, mm -hmm. was traveling along the uneven surface of the groundweed. 
too slight to be named in the language of the five senses, it moves slowly towards him. Mm-hmm. And Oyasa comes to a halt about 10 yards away from the very trepidatious ransom. What does Oyasa ask him? <laughs> Why are you so afraid? Mm. What are you so oh. afraid of, Ransom <laughs> yes. of the Wukandra? That's a very different statement, too, actually. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. And by the way, before as we, as we go there, he never could say what it was like. There's an inability to describe. And for me, it gave this great echo of Ezekiel, where he descri- tries to describe God as a wheel within a wheel within a wheel. And there's this kind of, he's, he's at a loss. But yes, um, what are, are you so afraid of? And his answer, I think, is is good one. Of you, Oyarsa, because you are unlike me and I cannot see you. His answer is good, and, but then the reasons behind his answer, as we find, are bad, aren't they? What we, maybe, maybe Andrew, the way we phrase it, is his answer is honest, <laughs> but not necessarily correct. Like, I love how he goes, those aren't great reasons. <laughs> right. And then we have a kind of a foretaste of the four loves, which, of course, is the prose version of Till We Have Faces. And we are both copies of Maladil. They are not real reasons. And so there's a likeness that they share, even though one is apparently uh, human. Well, one is human and one is apparently an angel Mm. uh, or an archangel. Which I think is somewhat similar to the biblical concept of image and likeness, although I don't think it would traditionally be applied to angels. Mm -hmm. But I think at the very least, it's we are from the same creator and therefore we bear some similar marks. Yeah. You know, in, in sticking with this idea of because you are unlike me and I cannot see you, those aren't great reasons. Those aren't great reasons for fear. You know, I just just to connect this back to and remind listeners, a really beautiful theme in this book is when you are closer or in an unfallen state, these kind of interactions, meeting people that are different from you, potentially being in a life-threatening situation shouldn't actually scare us. Like if we're in that more unfallen, perfect communion with God per se, Mm -hmm. type of state, which I know none of us are, and there's nothing wrong with the fear of death, we're all going to have it. But if we're in that state, we trust that God is with us and that he has a plan and we're living it out. And we don't know if that plan means to live to 30 or to live to 100 and how many people to touch, but we trust that we're we're operating in that framework. And so I kind of get a little bit of a sense of that here as well. Those, when he just says, those aren't great reasons, what's wrong with coming into someone different than yourself that you can't see and that crossed my mind a little bit well and fellas if you knew and loved the great divorce well enough you would also see the echo of the great divorce where he says um uh, you are unlike me but though i see you i see you very faintly so an echo of ransom being kind of a ghost and not substantial enough so um, please uh, feel free to let me fill you in on the proper role and interpretation <laughs> of the great divorce anytime you'd like. Thank you, Andrew. I love it, Andrew. Cheers. Well, rather crucially, Oyasa says that the reasons Ransom gave his fear aren't the real ones. So he actually mm. perhaps wasn't entirely honest, or perhaps he wasn't entirely aware. He tells Ransom that he knew that Ransom was afraid of him even before he arrived on Mars. He was afraid when he was in the spaceship uh, because apparently Oyasa had Eldila snooping on them and he saw how Ransom was mistreated. Well, this brings up an interesting point that we talked about in my screw tape class a couple of weeks ago. And the question was, can devils read our thoughts? And 
my rector said, I certainly hope not. <laughs> but I think that devils can hear what we say. And so while the enemy may not, they may know our tendencies, they may see our, and, and analyze our, our behaviors, but I don't think that the, that the devil can read our minds. And so I think Oyarsa too is drawing conclusions about ransom based on what was said while they were in space. Mm -hmm. So that to me, the revelation from the class helped help me make sense of this passage too a little bit. And speaking of revelation, it's here that we discover that it was Oyasa who provoked the Hanakra to attack when they landed, first on Mars, and he was therefore the cause of Ransom's escape. Mm. The problem was though that Ransom ran in the wrong direction, away from Oyasa, and he also ignored the advice of the Trossa to come to Oyasa. Mm -hmm. And that was why Oyasa sent an Eldil while they were hunting. And he says, even then, my instructions weren't exactly followed. Uh, and <laughs> all of this has ultimately led to the same conclusion you standing before me here today. But the difference is it's now a lot later and the blood of Hanau, Hoi, has been shed. You know, there's an echo of the, um, of the silver chair because the children get the four signs and they flub them all the way along, right? And in this way also, Ransom, um, Oyars has been trying to move Ransom in the right direction and he's flubbing it all the way along. All the information that Oyarsa shares, it kind of rocks Ransom's world. Mm -hmm. uh, we discover that it was Oyarsa who sent for Ransom, at least in a manner of speaking. Although Oyarsa thought the Western divine had explained more to Ransom. And the, the, the key thing that we discover here, we've mentioned this throughout, but this is where we, we find it explicitly, that the Eldila reside in heaven. Mm-hmm. We read, but Malakandra, like all worlds, floats in heaven, and I am not here altogether as you are. This is Oyasa speaking. I'm not here altogether as you are, Ransom of Thalkandra. Creatures of your kind must drop out of heaven into a world. For us, the worlds are places in heaven. But do not try to understand this now. It is enough to know that I and my servants are even now in heaven. They were around you in the skyship no less than they are around you here. Hmm. And since the Eldila live in space, the heavens, Ransom assumes that Oyasa knew about their journey even before they left Earth, but he discovers that this isn't the case. Why is that? Hmm. <laughs> Folk. Mm. Because it's a silent world. Earth is the silent planet. Yes. Um. And they talk about um, the different heavens and the translunary boundary. This is part of what the medievals knew. So we know about heaven being the sky. And then the second heaven is kind of above the sky up until the orbit of the moon. And the third heaven is beyond the orbit of the moon. And so it's kind of the third heaven is... In some ways, Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven, but the medievals kind of had this idea of levels of heaven. And so there seems to be some kind of boundary or barrier, and maybe it's the, it's the orbit of the moon. I think it's a lunary boundary. Um, and the devil is trapped within that orbit, and the earth is given over to him. And so um, there's an embargo basically, mm. uh, between what's going on on Earth and what's going on in the rest of the solar system. Yeah, we weren't always called Sulkandra, the silent planet. Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently the Oyasa of Mars and the Oyasa of Earth, 
Satan. Uh-huh. They knew each other, and apparently Satan was pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. But we're told that he became bent. So mm-hmm. this is his fall. And it was in his mind to spoil other worlds besides his own. He smote your mm-hmm. moon with his left hand, and with his right, he brought the cold death on my Harandra before its time. Mm-hmm. And then we're then told that Meleldil, God, told Oyasa to open up the valleys and let out the hot springs so that some of the Martian population could survive. This is what Ransom saw on the monoliths in the previous chapter. Yes. And we also find out that there was a battle with Earth's Oyasa and that he was bound to the Earth. And this is Mm -hmm. why Earth is now the silent planet. There's no communication with the rest of the heavens. Mm -hmm. And this is what Oyasa really wants to know. He wants to know what happened since then. Did you guys see any echoes of scripture in this section? <laughs> I'll leave that to Andrew, but I mean, I got the, the, cause I'm not really good at super specific scripture verses, but I really did get the sense of, we see Archangel Michael. I got the sense of the battle going on. I got the sense of Satan being banished to earth. Was that correct? And so, I mean, I, I, yes, I saw huge scriptural references. And of course this wasn't put in here, but the idea of God coming and, Dying for us on the cross kind of eluded a little bit of of fighting Satan and through that, um, not leaving it abandoned to Satan, but coming in and entering into the creation. So yeah, I, mean, I thought it was an incredible amount of references. Well, and there's the repeated phrase, this is a thing we desire to look into. Mm-hmm. And um, it's James, right? Do you have it in uh, there, It's David? First Peter. First Peter, Yes. Yeah, even angels long to look look into these things. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, he's writing to Christians, searched intently and with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing, and when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Hmm. And Andrew, you mentioned that this is a repeated phrase, and it's such an odd phrase that I think mm-hmm. Lewis is really trying to nod and wink at the reader, which makes it kind of incredible that only two of the reviewers got this. Yeah, you know. And I think that there's also a setup for what happens a couple of years later when I think that it's not only the angels that long to look into these things, but the devils don't understand it. And so part of uh, the screw tape letters, I think, is inspired by this passage that there's something going on that we don't we really don't understand. And so there's there's uh, kind of angels listening in 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 several of several kinds. And screw tape certainly doesn't understand it. The propaganda is that it's all about love, but that can't possibly no. be true. Can't possibly <laughs> be true because if it were, I'd turn into a centipede. <laughs> Do you think let's let's take Lewis's depiction here? As, as truth as what it is, which we know mm-hmm. he's just speculating some of these things, but doing it in an educated way. Do you think the intent of this, like there's two paths you could go. It happened this way with no desire of God to happen it this way. Well, he foreknew it. Free will led to one of them, the bent one, the bent oyarsa leading to this. And then he entered in and brought a second best situation out of an unfortunate circumstance. Maybe that's one way to read it. Mm -hmm. But here I'm hearing there's also something more beautiful about the way it happened in Thalkandra. It it demonstrated to me, I'm hearing from this story at least, while it was more painful, 
it demonstrated almost a higher form of love. Like imagine Thulchandra never happened and you have all these other planets that are either only slightly fallen or not really fallen. Do you really get to see the immense love of God without what happened in Thulchandra? I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking of even the lo- the angels long to look into these things. Like there's just something so immensely beautiful. So I'm just curious your guys' thoughts of how you're interpreting this or reading this. You know, often you'll hear there's, you can't really appreciate how good things are, you know, without the bad things, the bad things. It's only by the bad things that we can appreciate the good things. And I'm going to ask you, how much dog poop do you need in your ice cream to be able to appreciate it? (laughs) I don't need any dog poop in my ice cream to appreciate how good my ice cream is, right? If you had ice cream every day, would you know it's good? You haven't eaten enough ice cream, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. Do you ever get tired of a beautiful sunset, right? Do you ever get tired of the feeling of falling asleep when you've had a long day? Do you get tired of the love of the people who love you and who you who you enjoy? I don't need somebody interrupting my conversation to appreciate how good my conversation with my best friend is. I think that that's a misnomer. And I think that it's, in some ways, it's Lewis's main point in The Great Divorce, right? We're always trying to bring hell and heaven together. And Lewis's very point in that book is you can't, nor do you need to. And the, the, the least part of hell will not fit into heaven. And the smallest grain of sand um, on, the, on the ground of heaven is larger than the whole world of purgatory. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't think I need, I don't, I don't need any spoiled milk in my scotch to appreciate how good my scotch is. Right. See, I'm not quite so sure about that. I know I'm forgetful and I'm pretty sure a lot of other people are too. Chesterton has this lovely essay, I think it's called Standing on, on One Leg. Uh, and he would say that he would do that. So to, he would remind himself how wonderful it was to have two. Uh, but this also takes us back into the conversation that we had uh, a little bit before about Felix Culper, about um, mm-hmm. oh happy fault that merited for us such a greater redeemer. So well, we can point people back to that and we can try and pull apart free will and predestination uh, because you know if the church hasn't managed to really nail that down for 2000 years i don't think we're going to get much further <laughs> well and david real quick supporting your thing it's like that famous study that showed people who lost a limb and people who won uh, a uh, the lottery their baseline level of happiness was back to where it was a year later because we somehow constantly adjust to circumstance. If you have ice cream every day, you're probably not going to like ice cream anymore. You're just going to become your normal. <laughs> your dopamine resets. You're not going to realize it's it's it just resets to it. If you have a Michelin star restaurant for dinner every single day, it's going to become your normal. You're not going to really appreciate it anymore. So I, I'm kind of in the camp that I do think you need a little bit of for some reason, and I think there's a positive to what I'm kind of saying, human nature is incredibly adaptive to highly negative circumstances and highly positive ones. And somehow just comes back to the baseline. Yeah, but but I'm gonna I'm gonna wade in deeply against that. I love it. Bring it. Ransom realizes how fallen he is when he comes to this world. And the reason why we get so used to the five-star restaurant or the ice cream or whatever is part of our fallen nature, right? Mm. I don't need more fallenness. I need to be cured of my fallenness so that I don't get bored of the good. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And, you know, there's a Christian singer-songwriter, Keith Green, years and years and years ago. He died in 1982 at age 28, tragic death. Um, 
But Keith said, look, in heaven, we're going to be praising God all the time. If that's not fun for you now, that's not going to be fun for you there. So you better get accustomed to it. I think that if we need a contrast or a respite from the good, I think that that demonstrates part of our fallenness. And once that's removed from us, we'll drop it off like a, like a, a garment with holes in it that no longer suits its purpose. And so I, I really think that we were made for good and eternal goodness and more and more goodness. And also, the other thing I say is that, and it's, it's, uh, the metaphor came about when I was at the C.S. Lewis um, Foundation events. There's good stuff all day long, great speakers, great fellowship, beautiful scenery, great food. And then at night, then there's another event and the soul gets weary of goodness much more slowly than it gets weary of badness and the false and the counterfeit. And so, and the fact that we get weary of goodness is an element of our fallen nature, which I can't wait for the divine surgeon to remove so that we can have pleasures for evermore at his right hand and enjoy them fully. That's just where I live. Perfectly logical counter. I fully buy it. And the second thing you could have potentially pointed out, that was, that was well said, very well said, is the pleasure example from this book. In the non-fallen state, we wouldn't eat ice cream every single day. We would eat it the appropriate amount to experience the appropriate amount of joy and pleasure, and then we would put it yeah. to rest and remember it and move on to the next one. Well, well played. I was operating in a fallen world. Orwell says I was a craver, right? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up this uh, section on the theology of ice cream uh, by <laughs> also pointing out that this section also talks about when it talks about the fall of Satan, that he was bound up in the air. And Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2 says that, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The prince of the power of the air is, um, is how some of the Protestant translations have it. Mm-hmm. So in response to all of these bombshells, Ransom tells Oyas in very plain terms about the fallenness of our world. He explains that Western Divine didn't know of Oyasa at all and only kidnapped Ransom because the Sorns had asked for someone. And he explains that they thought he was a false Eldil. That's how he describes it, a false god or an idol to whom Ransom would be sacrificed. And Ransom says that he was afraid of Mars from the beginning. She doesn't name him, but basically H.G. Wells. The storytellers of Earth love to portray aliens as evil. Mm-hmm. And Ransom's explanation makes sense to Oyasa, although he does seem to disbelieve that any creature could be quite so bent, so sinful, that they would take someone there by force. Mm -hmm. But Ransom now asks Oyasa why he was summoned in the first place. And Oyasa tells the story from his own point of view. And so if this were a movie, we would now have a flashback. And we learn that Western Divine came to Mars four of our Earth years ago. And as soon as they entered the heavens, the Eldilla accompanied them all the way to Malacandra. And when they arrived on Mars, they cleared away all of the other creatures except the Eldilla. And they gave them some time to become acclimatized and accustomed to the new planet. And then Oyasa sent a few Sorns to teach them their language. And he chose Sorns since they were the most similar in physical appearance to humans. 
But this apparently didn't go very well, and Western Divine learned very little of the language, and we're going to have that demonstrated fairly soon. <laughs> and Oyasa noticed that Western Divine were collecting sun's blood, gold, from the streams. And he didn't really understand this, so he told the Sorns to invite them to meet him. But they refused. And Oyasa just asked them for one, and they still refused. And he says that they basically were then told that, okay, you can't take any more gold until someone comes to me. Hmm. And so Western and Divine gathered up all the stuff they had and then went back to Earth. And while this initially confused him, Oyasa can now see what was happening. They thought that he wanted one of them to eat. Mm -hmm. So they went all the way back to Earth to go and fetch somebody. Uh, and he says they've now twice gone a voyage of millions of miles for nothing and will appear before me nonetheless. And you also, Ransom of Thulkandra, have taken many vain troubles to avoid standing where you stand now. Mm. And so Ransom asks Oyasa what he wants. And Oyasa says that there are two things. What are they? Can I say Ruka before that? I'll let Andrew do this. I want to make one comment on that section before. You know, I mentioned how our fighting God's will can make things a little bit tougher than we'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. There's a second thing that I'd like to point out from this section. Our massive misinterpretation of circumstances can make whatever path we experience a lot more painful as well. So it's not just the fighting mm. it, but it's interpreting it. There's a lot of things that happen in my life that I have a feeling I'll look and God will be like, that was an incredible gift that I gave you right there because that did mm -hmm. this, this, and this, and this. And instead, it felt incredibly painful to me. And for the sake of time, I won't list a whole bunch of other things. But like, I think there's a deep truth that's being stated right here of just, if we understood and can see with the eyes, think of that one Christian song, let me see with your eyes, God. I can't remember which Christian singer it was from a decade ago. Um, but like, if we could only see as God sees in our own life and the role that he's playing, we would probably experience an, uh, an immense amount of less pain because we realize a lot of painful circumstances were gifts. So anyways, now to your thing, David. Before I answer David's question, let me um, let me quote from my first edition, first printing of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, where we're to confirm your point. And so when they come face to face with Aslan, it isn't Aslan, you know, or it isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy when they're told they're, they can never come back to Darnia. Uh, it isn't Narnia, you know, it's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, sir? said Edmund. I am, said Aslan, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. And that is Lewis's constitutionary statement, constitutional statement about story, right? He brings us into story so that we can understand him better, so that we can see more clearly, which is exactly what you were talking about. The two things, of course, that uh, Oyarsa wanted to ask. First, he said, why, why you come here? So much is my duty to the world. And secondly, I wish to hear of Thulkandra and of Malodil's strange wars there with the Bent One, for that, as I have said, is a thing we desire to look into. And that brings up your quote of the week. Um, and I love how that's put here. So how does Ransom answer that first question? Well, he, he, he assumes for kind of almost 
wrong reasons. He's like, I was kidnapped and the people divine Weston, they want to uh, take this gold, the son's blood. And they thought that I was a sacrifice that needed to be given for the son's blood. Yeah. Just the, I guess the fallen reason why he's there. Yeah. I came because I was brought the one wants son's blood. The other one wants perpetual, you know, human life to, to wipe out everything. Indirectly goes to the, the two big things like greed Essentially, mm-hmm. wanting a whole bunch of greed, and then also you could argue because one of them is greed. I can't remember if it was divine or Western, but one of them was greed, and the other ones was for scientific humanity versus humans. So you could argue those kind of things. He wants our race to last for always, and hopes that they will leap from world to world. Right? Yeah. Both of them are the same thing for greed, uh, for selfishness. Mm-hmm. Right? They wanted for themselves. And Oyasa thinks this is dumb. He has the best put down. Is he wounded in his brain? And he says, does he think that Meleldil wants a race to live forever? And Ransom says that if Mars's security can only be guaranteed by killing himself and the, the two others, he says he'd be content. Mm-hmm. And Oyasa responds by saying he doesn't have that authority. He says, if you were my own people, I would kill them now. Ransom and you soon, for they are bent beyond hope, and you, when you would have grown a little braver, will be ready to go to Meleldil. But my authority is over my world. It is a terrible thing to kill someone else's Hanau. It will not be necessary. And Ransom is worried about their guns and their 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 ability to destroy this planet, but Oyasa says he could destroy any future spaceship long before it arrived at Malacandra. <laughs> I love by a touch. <laughs> Oyasa now turns to his second question. He wants to know what happened to Satan after they bound him to Earth. However, as he's asking this question, Oyasa notices that Ransom's become afraid again. And what seems to be causing Ransom consternation is that Satan's fall and the attack on Mars took place long before humans appeared on Earth. Yet Ransom saw it depicted on a stone nearby. Mm -hmm. How could that stone have lasted so long? And interestingly, this observation causes Oyasa to note that I see you are Hanau after all. So we have to mm-hmm. broaden our definition of Hanau yet again. So not just sentient creature, not just virtuous sentient creature, but something else looking into the past and the future maybe. But Oyasa explains that the picture has been crumbled and copied again and again and again. Uh, he says, in a way, you are seeing a picture that was finished when your world was still half made. Mm-hmm. But Oyasa doesn't really want to speak of these things to ransom. Um, He says, my people have a law never to speak much of sizes or numbers to you others, not even to sorns. Mm -hmm. You do not understand, and it makes you do reverence to nothings and passes by what is really great. Mm -hmm. That's a question of size, and Lewis gets this from George MacDonald. So in The Princess and the Goblin and The Princess and Curdy, he's worried about the size of the grandmother because she's tiny and then she's big. And so size is an important question. You see it come up too in... Uh, in the silver chair, your bigger ass, or in Prince Caspian, your bigger ass. So no, you have grown. And so, um, yeah, looking over over the wrong things. And so Oyarsa is certainly setting him straight. But he has the right attitude because he says, I am here now and ready to do your will with me. So there's an echo of the Garden of Gethsemane there. Um, mm-hmm. And he repeats that sentiment too. And we also learned this in Star Wars. Size matters not. Look at me. Judge me by my size, do you? Mm. Mm. <laughs> 
Yes. And Oyasa tries to resume the conversation with Ransom about what Meleldil has done on Earth. But just as Ransom begins, a procession of Horosa enter the grove. So as they bring their burden to Oyasa, and we wrap up today's episode, do you guys have any final thoughts? I just think that this is um, uh, such a rich chapter mm -hmm. and such a great perspective. And the fact that Lewis writes science fiction in order to explore the spiritual ramifications, um, that proposal that we talked about at the beginning of the season is fully fleshed out in this chapter here. It's, it's just um, rich as plum pudding, I think Lewis would say. <laughs> and I think just a reminder to listeners how, how I don't know if the right word is unique, but just I agree with Andrew. The richness in this is insane. I mean, you heard all the th the points that just jumped out to me, the connections we just made to all of his other works. And this is pretty early in his conversion. I mean, it just goes back to that testament of um, Dr. Poe, Hal, who in his books, who says uh, essentially he, he's been trained well into his earliest years. I mean, he was training well before he was a Christian, the literature he was reading. I mean, so many of the things that were flushed out fully in later works were quite known already, or at least percolating in his mind very early. And so I think mm -hmm. we just witnessed a whole bunch of incredible themes here. This was what, 1938 is a reminder, Andrew? Is that right? It came out in 38, so he's writing it a little bit before. Well, I have two questions for our question of the week. Since Ransom has just begun his interview with Oyasa, and I've just completed four weeks of interviews, <laughs> what was the toughest interview you ever had? Ooh. Or if you want to do something a little bit more related to the story, in today's chapter, we learned what the original plan was meant to be that Western and Divine were meant to go to Oyasa. Um, and we also read back at the beginning of the book that they were originally intending to take Harry with them. How do you think this story would have played out if either of those had happened? Wow. What would have happened if they'd have gone to Oyasa themselves? And what do you think would have happened if they had brought Harry instead? Wow. Please feel free to email us, contact at pintswithjack.com. Use the contact us form on the website or comment on social media. I know exactly what I think. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> but I hear the call for final drinks. So thanks to our audio editor, Taylor Schroll. Thank you all for listening. And of course, our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Steve, Matt, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joelle, Deborah, Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for all of our listeners and all the prayer requests on our Slack channel every Tuesday. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. And because we're recording this on, on a Tuesday, let me add a blessing. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with all of our listeners now and remain with us forevermore. Amen. Amen. And please join us next time. When we'll continue going further up and further in. Skoll. 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 Skoll.